Known as South Korea's Watergate, the Chesun Shu corruption scandal took down a sitting president. It's an almost unbelievable story with an unlikely cast of characters a competitive equestrian, a religious cult, the multinational corporation Samsung, and South Korea's then president, Park Geun hye. When Park Geun hye was elected in 2013, she was dubbed the Queen of Elections for her strong performance in the polls. She enjoyed widespread support from South Korean conservatives, and media outlets all over the world covered this historic moment in South Korean history, the election of its first female president. No one could have predicted that just five years later, this same president would end up disgraced, impeached, and sentenced to 20 years in prison. This is the story of Park Geun-hye's downfall, South Korea's history of elite corruption, and its impacts on the nation's democracy. From the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, I'm Hyewon Park, and you're listening to Behind Closed Doors, Corruption in Democracies. Episode 3, Trouble in the Blue House. The Chesun Shi corruption scandal originated in an unlikely place. So the scandal didn't begin with the presidential office per se, or then we referred to it as the Blue House. Andrew Yeo is a senior fellow and the SK Korea Foundation chair at the Brookings Institution. There was another scandal that was brewing on a college campus at Ihua Women's University. Ihua University is a prestigious school in South Korea. Think Ivy League universities in the U.S. In 2015, a student named Tong Yura was accepted to the school, even though she didn't have the same high grades or other qualifications as her classmates. All the circumstances of her education and getting into schools, top schools, turned out to be fraudulent. Sumin Seo is a professor of journalism at Sogang University. Tong Yura was even given credit for eight courses that she never even attended. There was a big outcry. There were protests from the students. And it eventually emerged that Tong Yura was admitted to Ihua University because of the influence of her wealthy mother. This is a big thing in South Korea where if you are somehow seen as getting preferential treatment, especially when it comes to things like college exams. In South Korea, they have these college entrance exams. It's called the Sunung Shiam in Korean. This exam is a big deal. Every year on National Exam Day, the whole country holds its breath while the grueling eight-hour exam takes place. Most businesses close, the stock market opens an hour late, and the government even grounds airplanes to prevent students from getting distracted by flight noise. This college entrance exam is high stakes. In many ways, it can set the entire course of a young person's professional future. The score alone determines which universities they can attend and even which subjects they're allowed to study. And there's an assumption that you aren't really going to have a successful career unless you get into these top three or four universities in South Korea. Students spend their whole lives preparing for this test, the Sunung Shiam. It's not like here in the United States where you go to school and then you do your homework and then you'll go do your extracurricular activities. In South Korea, for many students, it's you go to school and then you go straight to these cram schools. They're called Hagwon in Korea, and you may be there until 8, 9, 10 p.m., and you're being educated to the point where you're probably two grade levels ahead of where you should be, all because you're competing 
with the next student because you want to get that great exam score to take a slot at the top university. So it's extremely competitive. It takes a lot of effort and money. Success in this competitive environment is no small feat. South Korean society suffers from rampant wealth inequality and limited job opportunities, so much so that younger generations frequently refer to their country as hell Joseon. This term is a nod to the feudal Joseon dynasty that ruled Korea for 500 years under a strict stratified class system. But despite all of this, education still represents a path of hope for low-income and middle-class families. So students are often willing to go to these incredible lengths to prepare for exams like the Sunungsiam. And so to have a student who is already coming from means and has a lot of wealth to be able to bypass the normal channels and because your parent or your mother's wealthy to pay off people to get into college that way, that was really seen as a breach of a norm in, in South Korea. So the public was outraged and investigations began to uncover more details about who was involved. And soon, what began as a simple college admission scandal morphed into something much bigger. Chung Yura's mother was Che Sun-sil, not only was she wealthy, but she also had powerful political connections. She was a confidant and a friend of then-President Park Geun-hye. Choi Soon-sil had several businesses. She had a foundation, and eventually she was charged with bribery and embezzlement. Choi Soon-sil would approach huge conglomerate companies such as Samsung and Hyundai and ask them to give contracts to her own medium-sized firms. Why would they agree? because Che Sun-sil was close personal friends with the president. It turned out that Che was using her relationship with President Park Geun-hye to extort these companies, sometimes to get contracts for her own businesses. If you don't sign this agreement or contract with our company, or if you don't hire us to do your advertising, I may talk to the president and you may see a tax evasion investigation towards your company or, your, or this specific division. Choi Soon-sil also pressured private firms to make substantial donations to her foundations. She had established a couple of new foundations that were linked to the Ministry of Sports and Tourism. She wanted to fundraise, so again, she would approach these companies and ask them for money. Now, this is where the connection becomes much more clear between Choi Soon-sil and the Park administration. Choi Soon-sil even used her connection to Park Geun-hye to pressure companies to give her money for personal use. But did the president know what was going on? Andrew Yeo and Joan Cho, assistant professor of East Asian Studies and Government at Wesleyan University, say she did. Park's personal aides were actually involved in helping set up these relationships. And sometimes it was the aides themselves that were extorting the businesses. Park also helped Choi to get donations. It wasn't just getting the money to fund the foundations, but those funds were used to buy horses and fund her daughter's equestrian activities. Choi Soon-sil's daughter is Chung Yura, the student who managed to get a place at Ihua University and never went to classes. It would have been a big enough scandal to discover that the president's office was helping Choi Soon-sil extort money from South Korea's biggest conglomerates. But the scandal didn't stop there. Corruption scandals of this scale is rare. It, it was like peeling onions. There's a layer after other layers. They were digging deeper into the investigation. They could see the networks and the connections between this woman, Choi Soon-sil, and also 
of President Park Geun-hye. In October 2016, a TV network called JTBC got their hands on Choi Soon-sil's laptop and they found a treasure trove of evidence of President Park's involvement in Choi's corrupt activities. This spurred state prosecutors to seize and search Choi's other electronic devices. Choi Soon-sil on her laptop had government documents that she should not have had access to. These were classified documents, some related to national security. It is revealed that Choi Soon-sil was there at cabinet meetings. It seemed like Choi Soon-sil was also editing some of the speeches that Park Geun-hye was giving. And so that all brought mounting evidence that Park Geun-hye is really unfit to serve as president, that she doesn't have control even over the decision-making process. And how is this woman, Choi Soon-sil, able to gain access to actually have influence over the president without having any formal or official part of the government? Eventually, it became clear that Choi Soon-sil had more control over state decision-making than the president herself. How did Choi Soon-sil, a woman with no credentials, no training, no official title, gain so much influence over the president of South Korea? To understand the nature of their relationship, we have to first go back to the 1970s, to Park Geun-hye's family history. Soo min Seo explains. I start with Park Jung-hee. Akuna's father, right? He was the president of South Korea for virtually all of the 1960s and 70s. To this day, there are conflicting views on Park Jong-hee's legacy. Here is Joan Cho. Park Jong-hee was a military dictator in South Korea from um, 1961 to 1979. He is most well-known for the economic achievement that happened under his time. People refer to it as the economic miracle on the Han River. When he became the president of South Korea, Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world. At that point, the Korean War had only ended a decade earlier, and South Korea was still primarily an agrarian society. People seem to forget oftentimes that South Korea was poorer than North Korea up until fairly recently, uh, by some estimates, early 1980s. Some South Koreans, particularly many conservatives, look back on the Park jong years with nostalgia. It was under his time that the economy grew rapidly, mostly through export-led industrialization. It was also a period of double-digit economic growth when things were simpler. But Park jong economic successes came at a cost. He was also a brutal dictator, especially beginning from 1972 when he instituted martial law. This was the Yushin period. Park Jung-hee sent 300,000 South Korean soldiers to Vietnam to support the U.S. in the Vietnam War, and he received billions of dollars from the United States to do that. And that money, again, was used to help develop the country. I just remember my Korean language teacher mentioning that the highway from Seoul to Busan, Highway 1, they would call that like blood road because the money that was received from Vietnam was used to develop the road, the national highway, the infrastructure system. During his reign, you know, there were massacres and illegal judicial killings, as we would call it. In other words, um, sending dissidents to jail, sort of very phony legal process, very quick swift execution, which was widely condemned by the international community throughout the 1960s and 70s. Absolute suppression of freedom of press and brutal crackdowns on citizens' movements of all kinds. 
there's thousands, if not you know, tens of thousands of South Koreans who are imprisoned, probably tortured, under Park Jong-hee's rule. Park Jong-hee's conflicted set of legacies was passed down to his daughter, Park Geun-hye. Her election was a polarizing moment in South Korean history. Depending on where your politics are, you may lean towards one particular set of legacies over the other. So you can imagine in the South Korean climate, on the one hand, you have the conservatives who, when Park geun was elected president, it was like, oh, the old days are coming back. There was a lot of nostalgia when she was elected. But for the liberals, for those left of center, like to have her come back was the unthinkable. It probably won't come as a surprise that Park Jong-hee and his family had a lot of enemies during his regime. In 1975, a North Korean spy attempted to assassinate Park Jong-hee, but the bullet missed and killed his wife instead. And of course, we know that Park Jong-hee was assassinated in 1979 by his own spy chief. So Park Geun-hye has probably had a lot of trauma in her life, but according to various accounts, it was the death of her mother that was quite traumatic. And it was during this vulnerable moment of Park Geun-hye's childhood that a man named Che Tae-min entered her life. Che Tae-min was the leader of a religious group called the Church of Eternal Life. Different accounts say that he was into shamanism, but eventually at one point became a Buddhist monk and then had converted to Christianity. But I think he's best seen as a cult leader. He somehow befriended and gained the trust of Park geun shortly after her mother's assassination. And so he counseled her. He actually told her that through him, he could connect to her mother. Some have described the relationship as a Rasputin to Park geun She was somehow enthralled or entranced by him, his figure, his aura. Park geun felt the same connection to Che Tae-min's daughter, Che Sun-sil, who also claimed to be a channel to Park's late mother. And so she becomes then a friend because they're closer in age. And this is how that relationship forms. So it goes beyond just a close friend, but it was as if there was a spiritual connection and a psychological connection. When the scandal broke and the public learned that Park Geun-hye was not only aiding Che Sun-sil in financial corruption, but also allowing her to be the shadow power behind her administration, people were outraged. They called for her impeachment. What happens next? We'll be back with the story of Park Geun-hye's fate in just a moment. Thanks for listening to this audio production from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. If you enjoy this program, make sure to check out other audio series and podcasts from Carnegie, including The World Unpacked, our bi-weekly breakdown of today's hottest global issues with experts, journalists, and policymakers. Subscribe to Carnegie Podcasts on popular podcast platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Now back to the show. In late 2016, President Park Geun-hye's corruption scandal broke. There was an immediate reaction. South Koreans took to the streets in angry protest. Andrew Yeo remembers. It started fairly small, just a few thousand, but then every weekend, after that, from mid-October, they began doubling in size. So a few thousand will become 100,000, will become 400,000, until you had over a million people protesting. These protests took place all over the country, but the largest were in Seoul's city square, Gwanghwamun. Sumin Seo says the space is important to Koreans. 
I guess the closest thing for the U.S. audience would be like the Washington Mall, like a place steeped in history and symbolism. Joan Cho says the protests were not just angry demonstrations, but were also aimed at influencing Korea's political process. People wanted change. The main protest location was Gwanghwamun Square. But during the candlelight movement, we had protesters protesting in front of the National Assembly before the legislators had to vote on the motion of impeachment. And then later, they also protested in front of the Korean Constitutional Court when the court was deciding on whether to uphold President Park's impeachment. Gwanghwamun Square is the same space where South Korean protesters won the democracy movement in 1987. But the pro-democracy protests in the 1980s were violent. One East Asia Forum article says, quote, In the past, it was impossible to picture a protest scene in South Korea without conjuring up the image of tear gas and Molotov cocktails between protesters and riot police. This time, although people were angry, the protests were peaceful. People decided to come with candles. People brought their children. Now, children, in strollers are, in my view, the biggest asset in a protest like that. They ensure that everybody goes home safely, that this is a family-friendly protest, that it cannot turn violent. This wasn't just your radical protesters coming to cause trouble, but families were coming. This was middle-class, ordinary Koreans. Protesters were coming from diverse age groups, backgrounds, including people who never participated in protests before, at one point, over 2 million South Koreans took to the streets of Seoul. Even at the height of these protests, they never turned violent. People listened to speeches, enjoyed live concerts, and shared meals as they held vigil, demanding accountability from their government. If you had stepped into Gwanghwamun Square on an average protest day, here's what it might have sounded like. There were over 2,000 civic organizations that actually coordinated these protests. You know, they set up the agenda, they prepared the stage, make sure the, you know, speakers are working, they recruit artists to perform. There were foreigners that were observing this and amazed that after the protests, you had people that were volunteering to clean up the garbage so that the next morning, like, Gwanghwamun Square was clean again. The protests were not only peaceful, but also perceived as mainstream, inclusive of broad segments of society, and even polite to people trying to move through the protest spaces. For many parents, the candlelight protests even became a fun, family-friendly activity. Still, the protests never lost sight of their broader political motive. Remember, these are protests calling for accountability, calling for Bakuna's resignation and impeachment. And Bakuna definitely heard these. I think in November, she came out and she made a tearful apology. At first, she denied any wrongdoing, but because these protests were becoming so large, she said that she would submit to the will of the people. As big as the candlelight protests were, there were still many South Koreans who continued to support Park Geun-hye. There were counter-protests. There were people who were pro-Park Geun-hye. And these protesters were mostly in their 60s, 70s. And 
I remember there were interviews of these protesters asking why they're protesting. And they said things like, these young people don't know what her father did to make this country prosperous. You know, we're here to save our president and to protect the system of free democracy from North Korean threats. Despite these counter-protests, the National Assembly voted to impeach Park Geun-hye in December 2016. South Korea's National Assembly chamber has witnessed uproarious moments in its past. Sit-ins, punch-ups, barred doors. But on this day, history was made with calm deliberation. 299 of its 300 members casting a vote on the impeachment of their president. The result, conclusive. The Assembly's Judiciary Committee chair have just notified the Constitutional Court of the result, and the court will have now up to 180 days to uphold or overturn the motion. Just a few months later, in March 2017, the Constitutional Court confirmed her impeachment. And two days after this decision, Park Geun-hye was removed from office and left the Blue House. South Korea wasn't new to elite political corruption. In many ways, the country's growth had long been based in corruption. When Park Jong-hye was president, he gave preferential treatment to a few select companies. And in exchange, those companies would kick back a portion of their profits to the Park Jong-hye government and his cronies. This is the model that led to South Korea's huge family-owned conglomerates, like Samsung. And this cronyism wasn't unique to Park Jong-hye. Nearly every single one of South Korea's past presidents or their family members have faced corruption charges of some kind. So how is it possible that in a country so familiar with political corruption, the Choi Soon-sil scandal shifted public opinion so dramatically against President Park Geun-hye? Well, prior to the emergence of the Choi Soon-sil corruption case, Park Geun-hye had already faced another big scandal, the Sewol ferry disaster. In 2014, hundreds of kids from Tanwon High School boarded a huge ferry to embark on a class trip to Jeju Island. The morning after the boat first left the port, it began filling with water. It ran aground and it started to sink. But the ship didn't just sink like that. It was a unique situation in the sense that the ship sank slowly. It was really horrific. I remember watching this unfold on CNN and the students didn't escape. And over 300 students and teachers drowned. There was ample media presence, and there was no meaningful rescue operation whatsoever. The deaths of these hundreds of young children was a highly publicized national tragedy. They send text messages, and it's heartbreaking. They send last voicemails that never got delivered to moms and dads. And it was an entire community. You know, most of the kids attended the same high school, same school trip. So you have these scenes of Empty-out classrooms of empty chairs. Public outrage followed. People demanded to know, where were the authorities in the several hours it took for this ferry to sink? Why wasn't a rescue team sent sooner? And how was this entirely preventable disaster just allowed to happen? Talk about adults failing young kids, right? The captain fled, except for a handful. Most of the crew fled. And up until the moment they fled, they kept announcing over the communication system, do not leave. Do not leave where you are. Wear your life vest, stay put, we will rescue you. The captain put this announcement on autoplay as he secretly fled on a tiny boat that came and rescued no more than a few dozen people. 
And this is something where the president should have been right on the scene, should have been present, giving orders, mobilizing emergency teams, mobilizing the Coast Guard. And she wasn't playing that role. And so there was confusion, miscommunication. The part that upset Koreans the most was her missing for the first seven hours of the ferry sinking. And to this day, it's not clear what the president was doing for those seven hours. And there were a lot of different rumors going around. There were rumors like she was getting a beauty treatment or she had this shamanistic ritual or she was just sleeping or she was getting her hair done. Although the Sewol ferry disaster alone wasn't enough to drive Park Geun-hye out of office, it added to her image of incompetence and poor leadership. Of course, this only got worse when all the sordid details of the Che Sun-si scandal emerged. So Koreans found out about the whole corruption and the involvement of Che Sun-si in government affairs. And then now they're linking back to, you know, what happened back in 2014. And people started to realize that Park was not fulfilling her duty to protect Korean citizens' lives. She was not really faithfully carrying out her presidential responsibilities. And that, I think, contributed to Koreans' demand that she is not fit to be the president and she should be impeached. Once Park Geun-hye left the Blue House, there was a snap election to replace her. There was a special election that was held in May 2017, and it led to the election of then-President Moon Jae-in of the Democratic Party. Moon Jae-in's political past is also closely intertwined with Park Geun-hye's and her father's. Moon Jae-in was a human rights lawyer who defended political dissidents during the authoritarian period. In the 1970s, Moon Jae-in was a student activist in the movement against Park Jong-hye's authoritarian rule. He was even expelled and imprisoned for organizing a protest against the Park Jong-hye regime. From a career in law, Moon Jae-in later entered politics. In the 2012 presidential elections, he was a leading candidate and lost to Park Geun-hye by a narrow 3.6%. Five years later, he came back and replaced Park Geun-hye, the daughter of the dictator that he had once been jailed for protesting against. The story of Park Geun-hye's impeachment represents an important victory for South Korea's still relatively young democracy. To start, it further empowered South Korea's already active civil society. Akane's impeachment helped strengthen the process of democracy, both institutionally, but also in terms of the role that civil society can play in keeping governments accountable. The protests do play an important part because it really demonstrated first to Koreans that no one can really be above the law. And it's not just the president, but you saw the CEOs that were then investigated and sent to prison. You saw government officials of former ministers that were also held accountable. In the end, it wasn't civil society that impeached Park Geun-hye, it was the National Assembly, but certainly the voice of public opinion and the voice of candlelight protesters, they were heard. And that certainly gave pressure for lawmakers to move quickly and to investigate. Park Geun-hye's impeachment also helped strengthen the legitimacy of the judiciary in the minds of the South Korean people. So in order for the South Korean president to be impeached, first you have to have the National Assembly members vote on the motion of impeachment. And that has to pass first in order for it to go to the constitutional court. And the judges on the constitutional court will have to vote 
on whether they uphold her impeachment. At the time, I believe the majority of the judges, if not all, were appointed by conservative presidents. So I remember that people were holding their breath. You know, what happens if the constitutional court says that this entire process is unconstitutional or that she was being impeached based on political motives and not because she had broken any laws? So that was a real fear. But the court voted unanimously to uphold her impeachment. The Korea Social Opinion Institute took a poll right after the constitutional court's ruling. The poll showed that 9 out of 10 South Koreans accepted the constitutional court's final decision. This was in contrast to before the ruling, when 4 out of 10 people in polls said that they would not accept an impeachment judgment diverging from their own. Another way that Park Geun-hye's impeachment strengthened South Korea's democracy was by simply reinforcing democratic norms like the peaceful transition of power. Now, again, I'm going to say that there is no perfect democracy and South Korea is far from it, but this episode really showed that democratic institutions were working as they should and that you did have a peaceful transition of power. Now, this was not inevitable or obvious. This was the first full impeachment in South Korea's political history, and it's easy to imagine a counterfactual case where the protests and transition of power turned violent. There's arguments, anecdotal evidence of Koreans being very passionate about politics. You can find in YouTube scenes of National Assembly lawmakers literally fist-fighting on the assembly floor. Of course, that's not to even mention the multiple military coups in South Korea's political past. But this time, things were different. Everything from the candlelight protests to the impeachment and Moon Jae-in's inauguration all occurred peacefully and democratically. Now, this isn't to imply that Park Geun-hye's ousting and Moon Jae-in's presidency created a flawless democracy in South Korea. The country still faces daunting challenges. One of these challenges is South Korea's deepening polarization. After the announcement of Park's impeachment, her supporters organized a rally that turned violent. Although this represented a very small portion of public opinion, it was still reflective of the divisions within South Korean society. Another polarizing moment was when Moon Jae-in entered the presidency and pardoned Park Geun-hye, releasing her from her 20-year prison sentence. While some people argued that her pardon undermined government accountability, others said it was a political act that served the common good of the country. In other words, Park Geun-hye's pardon could be used to foster national unity and advance partisan goodwill in an increasingly polarized environment. You may say that there's no justice that can be served with her being pardoned. She deserves to be locked up to the end of her life. But I don't think it diminishes the fact that she was prosecuted at the end of the day and sent to prison. Another challenge that persisted into Moon Jae-in's administration was the same issue of corruption. Moon entered the presidency promising to clean up the government, but he himself found himself entangled in a few of his own corruption scandals. In 2019, Moon Jae-in appointed a man named Cho Kuk as his justice minister. Cho Kuk was tasked with structurally reforming the national prosecutor's office. Cho Kuk had never been a prosecutor in his life. He had a legal background. He served in the South Korean Supreme Court, but he'd never been a prosecutor. He was a close supporter of Moon Jae-in. So already he wasn't seen as a neutral figure. Cho Kuk was also embroiled in scandal because his daughter, it turned out, also had received preferential treatment and she had done these internships at a medical school and 
So Samed said, well, Moon Jae-in said he was going to have a fair and clean government, and already Cho Guk has the scandal, but yet he's trying to ram through his favored guy. And so many conservatives saw it as a double standard. Corruption scandals continue to come to light in South Korea. Like in Brazil and every other country, corruption is a difficult beast to tame and even more impossible to eradicate. Still, there were some signs of reform that came out of Park Geun-hye's political scandals. The Seoul ferry disaster was an important catalyst to the passing of an anti-corruption law commonly referred to as the Kim Yong-ran Act. This law was implemented in 2016, ironically while Park Geun-hye was still president. The law aimed to reduce corruption among public officials. The Constitutional Court has issued its ruling on the so-called Kim Yong-nan law, named after the person who proposed it, saying it does not violate the Constitution. Under the law, it will be legal for civil servants, journalists, and educators hired by private schools to receive individual gifts of goods or services worth more than 887 U.S. dollars. The law also makes it illegal to accept meals exceeding $27, presents in excess of $44, or receiving more than $89 in money for a wedding or funeral. There were also a few structural reforms during the Moon administration. In 2019, the government created a new agency called the Corruption Investigation Office for High-Ranking Officials, or the CIO. The CIO can investigate crimes like bribery and embezzlement relating to high-ranking officials. Here's Lee Sang-hak, a chairperson at Transparency International Korea. Currently, it's only the prosecutor's office that has indictment authority in Korea. It was important to split up the prosecutor's role by creating an independent agency with investigative authority. Before the CIO, all investigative power was centralized in one body, the prosecutor's office. The prosecutor's office also has a long history and reputation of corruption dating back to authoritarian rule. Some have argued that this is arguably the most powerful office in South Korea because it gives you the power to investigate and indict individuals for a variety of crimes. And before South Korea's democratization in 1987, you could see how this could be abused. The CIO was a means of balancing out the investigative powers of the prosecutor's office and curbing corruption. But in actuality, the CIO has fallen short of its initial goals. There were lots of high expectations and hopes for the CIO, but in reality, it's been pretty disappointing. The CIO has authority in theory, but it's not functioning properly. A lot of the meaningful authority still remains with the prosecutor's office, as before. For many cases, the CIO cannot actually prosecute the cases itself. Instead, it has to turn its results over to the Supreme Prosecutor's Office, which then decides whether to prosecute or not. Some have argued that if the CIO doesn't have ultimate say in prosecution, its investigative powers are not so meaningful. Others have expressed concern that the CIO's powers are vulnerable to abuse by presidents seeking to exert influence over the agency's actions. We can't know how effective South Korea's recent anti-corruption reforms will be in the long term. But there are important lessons to be learned from the stories we've covered in this series, the tale of Brazil and South Korea's two anti-corruption efforts. 
both movements had meaningful redeeming qualities. In Brazil, Lava Jato held hundreds of powerful elites legally accountable and increased compliance programs in the private sector. South Korea's anti-corruption movement strengthened judicial legitimacy and led to reforms like the Kim Jong-un Act and the creation of the CIO. But while South Korea's civil society-led efforts strengthened democratic norms and made attempts to address systemic issues of political corruption, Brazil's court-led efforts polarized the public and judiciary and struggled to tackle the institutional realities that led to the Lava Jato operation. Of course, we should refrain from reducing these two cases to simplistic good versus bad approaches to tackling corruption. Brazil and South Korea face unique challenges due to differing socio-political contexts. And we've also seen from episode one that societal understandings and definitions of corruption are complex and ever-changing. That being said, Brazil and South Korea's divergent paths show that it's not good enough to just have morality on your side. Anti-corruption movements that want to sustain success need to think about how to limit polarization and protect democratic norms, even as they aim for their broader goals of systemic change. In a world with far too many corrupt regimes, it's a lesson that is, and will continue to be, needed globally. From the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, I'm Hiwon Park, and we've reached the end of Behind Closed Doors, Corruption and Democracies. Thank you so much to everyone who's listened. This episode was written and produced by me, Hiwan Park, with production assistance from Tim Martin. Music was composed by me and artists on Pixabay, and translation voiceovers were narrated by Benjamin Feldman. Thank you to Megan Wiegand and Ali Brace for editing, and Amy Mellon and Jocelyn Solly for graphic design support. Thank you also to Andrew Yeo, Sumin Seo, Joan Cho, and Lee Sanghak for their expert interviews. A special thanks to Rachel Kleinfeld for supervising and editing support. You have been listening to an audio production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Subscribe to Carnegie Podcasts on popular podcast platforms such as iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Learn more at carnegieendowment.org.